So I wonder if it's clear to all of you by now that you're not in complete control of your mind. <laughs> and that it's a little bit crazy. Also that you're, that the body has a few opinions of its own about how it's going to feel um, at different times or what sensations it might offer. So for this talk I'm going to borrow um, a title from my friend Ruth King, who's another Dharma teacher in our tradition. She has a, it's called Embracing the Mad Mind. So equanimity and embracing the mad mind are not uh, two separate things. And equanimity um, means finding balance amidst kind of all of the experiences that we have through our life, including the experiences of fragility, vulnerability, um, and how the mind seems to change the channel, which is something I'm going to get to without your having asked, like, who changed the channel in here, right? You go to your breath, and then all of a sudden, ten minutes later, you're like, oh, wow, here I am. Wow, what is this? (laughs) And one tends to kind of blame oneself or feel like a failure at those times. But that's really how it is even uh, when you're sitting on this side, up on the shelf looking out. There's no glass here. We're in the same room together. So when I was a much younger person, I uh, lived in Latin America till I finished high school. And we would come every other year to the United States. My father had this company would bring him. And we would go to Miami and stay with my Uh, father's parents which kind of wasn't that fun when we were small and at some point my parents had this great idea that we should go to summer camp because that's what kids did in sort of our I guess our social class of something so we were put on the train and sent to Vermont my little sister and me and it was very difficult my mother gave me a postcard so that I could write her every day as a result of her telling me to write her every day, I was not able to write her even one day because <laughs> it was kind of too much. But then I felt bad that I wasn't writing her. I imagined all the torture she was enduring by my rejection, but I was unable to maneuver in all these emotions. Then I was in a cabin somehow with the outcasts, which tends to happen if you come from another country or something, and you're at the end of the alphabet or for random reasons of karma, I don't know. And... Um, There was one girl who was pretty mischievous and figured out how we could paint the light bulb red with a magic marker and say we were were whores. (laughs) Which I I didn't really know what it was (laughs) exactly, but it was fun because the counselor got upset with us. I knew we were being bad and it was enjoyable. And then the light bulb would pop because of the effect somehow of the magic marker did something to the glass (laughs) and it would explode. And on the third light bulb, she got really mad and said that we could. (laughs) So um, then we also discovered that you could put toothpaste on the handle of the outhouse. Now, I don't want to give you all any ideas here. (laughs) So that when someone would try to open the door to the toilet, they'd get toothpaste on their hand. Ooh, well, that was so bad. (laughs) And then I was somehow, I can't really remember how this happened, but there was an older camper or counselor um, who was nice to me. Like I, th- I think she was like the only person I felt comfortable with. Meanwhile, my little sister was the pet of the camp because she was the youngest one and everyone was always braiding her hair and everything. And like, <laughs> She was just the pet. Oh, God, she had such a good time. I was just, ugh. So I was visiting this uh, counselor at night and I was caught in the bushes coming back to trying to get back in my cabin without being seen. So I had to go to the guy who was the head of this place. And he said, I had a bad attitude. (laughs) (laughs) My mind was just like, you have no idea. You know, like I just couldn't, I just knew he was mad at me. And he he said I had a bad attitude. I didn't know what he was talking about, really. Like, what is a bad attitude? (laughs) But um, I don't think there was any way that he could understand how dislocated I felt, you know, I had probably never been around such a group of North American girls in my life up until then, um, much, even though I look exactly like them all, 
which was a part of the confusion, I think, for everyone. Um, I couldn't have told you what was wrong. I don't think I could have explained it at that time. I just had to do what I was doing, which was kind of find my own way through a lot of confusion. And I imagine that growing up is like this um, off and on for nearly everyone. Um, if not adult life is like this, how about getting married or <laughs> things like this? Um, new jobs, different environments, um, being here, um, things like this. Which is one reason why um, meditation practice has suited me so much is because no one was really coercing me or telling me how to be. You know, there's this somewhat uniform outer atmosphere, but your insides are kind of your own business. And there's an exploration of what's genuine for ourself rather than an imposition of how we should be. But I'm also here to talk to you about your attitude. Um, <laughs> in a non-coercive way, I hope, but an inviting to explore kind of way. Um, Because equanimity is the theme of the retreat. And I mean, I don't mean to lay it on you because it may not be everyone's experience or even desire. Like you might be here um, meditating with equanimity, the farthest thing from your mind, which would be completely fine. But as an exploration of um, the way our mind holds any kind of experience is a very important ingredient in that experience. How we, the kind of attitude that we have about what's happening either inside or outside of ourself. It's like our mind is this uh, spin doctor or at least part of what's going on is that there's a spin doctor in there. And so equanimity helps us to understand that or mindfulness, which is, let's say that one component of mindfulness and presence is a quality of equanimity or steadiness or ability to just sort of see what you're see what's going on without um, adding to it or if you're adding to it then see that you're adding to it I guess that's the that's the subtle part of equanimity so let's say like the basic human as a human being or as any kind of uh, sentient creature it's really important to know, um, you know, something about what's safe for us uh, physically, psychologically, emotionally, uh, what things to approach and what things to stay away from, what places to go or not go. Um, the wild camper grew up to have a somewhat wild adolescence and wild 20s. My dear old friend is in here who's my mother used to warn me against my dear old friend who's here because she didn't shave under her armpits. And my friend, this dear old friend who's in this room, um, used to say, if your mother knew more about you, she wouldn't be so worried about me. (laughs) 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 But one of the things I had to learn in growing up is like not necessarily to go to places where I didn't belong um, because you don't uh, necessarily always, if you're not invited somewhere, uh, what happens might not be something that you enjoy. So we do have to learn these things. And our ability to think and plan and remember and all of our motor skills and stuff like that are part of the equipment that we use. Like there's an information processor in here also. What, you know, what comes in, kind of match it up with what we know or what we remember. And then we kind of make decisions that may be, feel natural or we may sort of labor over those kinds of decisions and sometimes we make mistakes. It's a very fallible process because reality keeps changing. It's actually like we're often balancing different kinds of impulses and wishes and memories or, you know, doing things that we don't feel like doing or, you know, wondering how much of our instinct to trust and stuff like that. And what Uh, comes up in us often in response to a situation will come from our past or our conditioning what you know we're called a karmic process you know that um, we're continuously changing in response to circumstances in response to our environment uh, in response to the people that surround us and the weather and all those things we're very adaptive creatures like we pack different clothes to come to a retreat and stuff like that We're very um, malleable. You know that when 
we work out or something like that, our body responds and changes based on the stresses that we put on it or the kind of things that we ask it to do. And so does our mind also change in response to, um, you know, our natural environment and the things that we ask our mind to do or teach our mind to do. So what we're doing here is actually with this, in this very diverse and changing flux of experience, training our mind to do uh, what seems a very simple task of being present to the sensations of the body and somewhat to the movements of the mind and to keep on generating this kind of attention and uh, to sort of abide in the present moment and let the experience flow through without um, kind of getting caught in a way. So we we have this natural ability as a person to be present and know what's happening. In fact, at some level, um, knowing what's happening in the moment is, you know, it's a critical ability, but also thinking and planning um, is also a critical ability, and the balance of those two um, is an interesting point to explore. Imagine leaving your mind in its natural condition, in its untamed and savage state. Um, I was bought the uh, a mindfulness course with many CDs, and um, which I haven't listened to all of, but he, the teacher there, he's called Mark Muse, has a very funny monologue about um, being in a meeting at, at work and letting his mind run on and, t- you know, how it, instead of the subject of the meeting, it's like, her hair is really weird, that guy's voice is strange, I'm going to have to talk next, I haven't talked in a while, so I better say something or else people aren't going to even know I'm here, and, you know, all this kind of stuff, like the muttering that our mind goes through, paying attention to aspects of things that are often like, you know, um, I don't know, maybe not, that's not necessarily on the topic. So I don't know if you've seen here in this very room, many places that your mind has gone, or if just imagine all the different thoughts and ideas that have passed through the 90 people's heads who are in this... I mean, I sometimes like to imagine the thought balloons that are going on during a sitting. Um, It's not all really that easy or funny. Like sometimes our mind goes to places that are very difficult, um, scary, unbearable, not fun. Or um, maybe times when we thought our life was much better and it's no longer like that, and now our life feels ever diminished in response to, or in comparison to what it was like, or what it could be like, or all of these things, that our mind actually is an experience generator all on its own. It affects our body, it affects our state of consciousness, and it affects our well-being. So some ability to regulate our mind and emotions is a uh, really important piece of Um, happiness, health, and well-being. That's our, kind of our, you know, argument here that in order to have a really healthy mind, it needs to be able to open to all different kinds of things and also be able to relax. Sometimes relax uh, with something that's challenging, um, but also be able to let in different kinds of information. And be with things. I mean, it seems to me there's a, something quite beautiful and special that happens um, being with reality in the moment. It has something to do with the, uh, maybe the number of days that we have to be alive that um, actually living um, in our experience or living in reality in the moment has a special quality. I'm going to come back to that a few times. Like a friend of mine who um, works with people in a hospital and she just goes and volunteers to hang out with people who are very sick and she says she can't really put into words what it feels like um, being with other people she says but um, she kind of like becomes them or they become each other in the way that they open up sometimes and that it's special this ability to be with things to be with ourselves in this way and to be with others in this way And we can train our attention to open up in ways that are very profound, very life-giving, and also very healing. 
So the fact that we can train our attention to have this kind of direct knowing that we've called mindfulness, it's something like beyond the words, like you will know in yourself what it is to attend to the moment and experience in a way that's not harming, that's not reactive, that just simply knows and is open. Like that's for each of you to find the analog beyond the word. There's a Thai forest master or female master. I don't want to call her a mistress, but there's a Thai forest master named Upasika Ki, who calls it an unentangled knowing. It's almost like a little expansion of our basic consciousness, the basic consciousness of the moment um, that can only happen in the moment, that's not a memory, that's not a plan, that's not a theory, that's not an opinion. Um, very, very simple, but um, the task of sort of sustaining it and building it into something that um, has a powerful effect on our life is what we're training in here. The environment is not really about the environment itself. It's really simplified in a way to just try to facilitate this process of, you know, we call it waking up because wakefulness and attention have something to do with each other. But we can have the intention to generate this kind of attention, which could almost be a, a form of, it's a type of an attitude that we take to experience. It's a, um, a type of orientation, a way of being with. And it also amazes me to know that we can influence our mind through intentions, that I, I think it must be an outgrowth of this amazing ability that we have in our body to like stick out our finger and push a button. You know what I mean? That there's, uh, we control our body with an intention, which you might notice sometimes in your meditation practice that there's an intention and then you get up or you like walk into the dining room, you coordinate a lot of things around maybe some desire, like you're thirsty or something like that and you get up and go. We can also send our attention around our body. Like I, um, let's say we all have a left foot everyone in this room, if you're willing to do it or interested in doing it, you can all think about your left foot right now. You can all uh, actually place your attention in there and feel it. And is it tingling, asleep, numb, cold, warm, those kinds of things. And when Erica was teaching the yoga, I noticed that, you know, you can relax parts of your body or you can notice if they're bunched up and then you can take a sort of um, movement or pull the flesh of your buttocks out so that the bot, your lower back becomes more relaxed. You can notice these things and respond. And um, you can even invite parts of your body to let go of tension, like your eyes or your lips. Now, they don't always let go of it all away, all, all the way. Like sometimes you'll hit a sort of knot of tension that says no more. And then it's also a time for equanimity to say, okay, so... Now I'm noticing that it, I can't go any farther with this, or I have the intention to remain present, but it didn't happen. So with equanimity, we notice that it didn't happen, and we include those moments in our meditation when the intention doesn't reach what you might call it a goal. You know, it doesn't do what we thought, but the equanimity is sort of resilient and opens into, okay, so I thought this would happen, now this is happening instead. Uh, now I'm aware of this happening. That's a place to find a kind of balance. So in a sense, Winnie has been saying in the instructions, and um, also Beth said today, that there's something about gentleness that's very important in the way that we pay attention, in the way that we scan the body, in the way that we do our practice here. Um, we were laughing in the in our teacher sort of conferences that we have is saying that, that here we are sitting with our bad minds in the afternoon and uh, we would like you uh, to know that punishment and spanking only make it worse. Um, <laughs> although punishment and spanking may be part of what we feel like doing at times to our mind that will not stay put or our tired, sleepy self or our desire to go home or whatever those things are. All of these uninvited guests. It's got to be somebody's fault, right? <laughs> Actually, it's not anybody's fault, and it's not 
since there isn't any you, you can also, that's a Buddhist philosophy we'll get to later on in the retreat. You can just tell yourself, it's not my fault because there isn't any me. <laughs> not really. <laughs> So this, you know, it's called sometimes observing or watching. The early image that uh, we gave from Ajahn Chah was, or I gave from Ajahn Chah, is as if strange animals are coming to drink at the pool of your mind. But, you know, that's a very beautiful image. It doesn't really always feel like that. It feels often more like tumultuous and up close or like it's right up in your face than that. How do we take a balanced and loving attitude to what it really feels like when it's kind of like yourself, like it's your whole self that's involved in this. Um, It's not just your mind balancing like a beautiful butterfly on the tiny trembling of the warmth at your nose. It's also when your mind is extremely unruly and weird and rebellious and unpleasant. Um, So the teaching I'd say that part of what's really important in this meditation is we are doing it together. We're doing it in this lineage of human-to-human education and transmission that, um, as we've learned from our teachers, there is no such thing as a bad or wrong mental state. Now, this has become more and more important to me recently. Like It sort of dawned on me when I was teaching a beginning class at... Cambridge Insight and borrowing the notes of um, people who taught it inside LA. And this was their primary teaching about mindfulness of mind. And I was like, yeah, that is really important. That's a really beautiful thing. And it's certainly not what I learned or what I believe or the way that I respond to myself, that there isn't such a thing as a wrongful mind state. On some level, there is no such thing as a bad attitude. It's only that some work better than others. Um, some are more onward leading. So they did an experiment where um, people were given a week regime or maybe it was a three-month regime of doing a lot of exercise and taking care of their body and eating really well and the other group, um, this other group had to do mindfulness instead (laughs) with this gentle coming back to the breath and to the body and uh, really being embodied in their awareness and doing a little yoga, but not so much of this kind of um, holistic living thing. And at the end, the spa and exercise group went to a spa for five days and the mindfulness group went to a retreat for five days. And as I read this study, I thought, like, I would think I would have liked to be in that other group. (laughs) Can I change my group? (laughs) Um, And at the end, each group um, reported, like, that they felt kind of better. They felt happier. They felt... Uh, more responsive, they felt more alive, they felt more kind of balanced and stuff like that, that they had reports of well-being. But when they studied um, some of their immunity levels and cellular changes, the mindfulness group was way ahead, which is just, it's an interesting finding, not to say that we shouldn't do spa exercise yoga and take care of the body, but that, that there's something about working with our minds or doing this kind of internal work that goes deeper than it might appear to do, that it affects our um, experience in a very profound way. I've often felt, I remember Michelle McDonald once said, this goes deeper than we can know. I always liked that. I liked uh, letting there be an element of mystery also in what we're doing here. Experiments on young animals have shown that um, very anxious baby animals, if they're raised by adoptive mothers who are more relaxed, um, become more relaxed. And their genetic expression, you know, the genes that are in them turn, that, uh, turn on and off, they become less anxious genetically also. It's said that the, if you listen to, I, I listen to a um, talk by a couple of brain nabobs, you know, with a talking about the hypothalamus and all these other things that many of you in this room may know more specifically about than I do. But what I got from their talk between Dan Goldman um, and Richard Davidson was that this emotional regulating system of our mind is one of the most um, changeable and the most accessible to change that we have. 
there are some things that you know are very impactful uh, for us in childhood, but later on in life, um, if we're able to have some of those difficult feelings in an environment where we feel safe and accepted, um, even for having them, that the whole impact on your psyche really changes so that um, we can really ameliorate um, a lot of what went on if we had difficulties or like everyone has had. Our friend Marlon, who's in the back of the room, gave me a, uh, forwarded me an article that I'd actually already read about the um, beautiful healing process between um, war veterans and parrots. Um, so I see that some of you may have read it, that there's something almost about having even the same kind of disabilities that um, when there's a quality of connection through love and through the heart and under mutual understanding occurs that something can change. So we're doing some of that here for ourselves, like um, changing our minds and bodies through attention. And I want to say there's an implicit kind of empathy and sympathy in this room, in the container of the teachings and the precepts that we've kept and in the kind way that we're all making little room for each other at different times and waiting in line and all gestures of consideration that happen. Um, I don't know how some of you may have, especially new people may have some uh, questions or feelings around eye contact. And I think we've probably talked about it in the manager's talk. I don't know if we talked about it much in the introduction, but it's okay. Some people don't um, want to make eye contact because they find it's very activating in some way. So they like to keep enclosed. And in longer retreats, often people will deliberately not meet your eyes, but it doesn't mean that they're not feeling friendly. And it's also not a crime if you happen to meet someone's eyes. However, if it sort of starts to feel like you really need someone else to acknowledge you in order for you to feel okay, then uh, you're encouraged to sort of look at that and kind of see if you can just notice that it's a pattern for something that you rely on. Um, we can talk about that more at another time, but it, sometimes there's a cultural piece to what happens here that's so easy to misunderstand and feel sort of hurt by and it's it's different you know there are other spiritual communities that really exchange a lot of hugs and smiles and love and um, we're not expressing it physically so much but we can do it kind of silently in our hearts and also through just the way that we give each other space in a loving way so when our mind is not in an easily balanced state and connected with the body and it's off kind of doing on one of its rampages it's important to be able to sort of see what's going on and to understand that it's part of the process um, and to acknowledge it and see it for what it is, which it, your mind is not going to tell you that it's crazy right now. Your mind is probably going to tell you that you really need to get out of here or something like that, you know? <laughs> It's not going to tell you that the best thing for you is really to keep sitting here or to just adjust your posture a little bit. It might be like, ah, no, <laughs> you've got to listen to me. But if you don't um, respond or react quite so quickly and you just can sort of turn toward what's happening and say, well, this, so this is what is happening. I'm really feeling like I need to leave right now. This is a feeling. And bringing in that process of mindful kind of open observation for a little while and placing attention on it in this kind of caring, loving, embracing the mad mind sort of way, then what happens is you insert a point of choice or what we might call disidentification, like you don't feel like the mind state is you and then you can make a different kind of assessment. Now this is really important for us to, you know, gives us a, a lot of dignity or more dignity than we might have had, occasionally gives us more dignity. It also allows us to learn things that may be, uh, learn and unlearn things that may be deeply rooted in our conditioning. For example, um, I was, um, I had a fellowship once with someone who was working on um, anti-racism and she worked in police departments and she said a lot of times the police are, so they have to take these trainings 
not to, you know, respond in quite so conditioned of a way. And she said it was really hard for them to watch it or admit that they could be doing this. Maybe in part because their lives are so hard or already and they felt like, you know, we're in danger every day on the street or whatever it might be. But she said she had given many presentations to police who would pull their hats down and weren't watching. Just they're in the room because they had to be in the room. So how do you think they're ever going to unlearn things inside them? Like if they cannot somewhat disidentify or sort of say like, well, I might have this, but maybe this isn't what I want to entertain or perpetuate in myself. Like if you don't admit that you have some of those things that are conditioned in you by society or by your parents or by just your um, freaking mind, um, then it's very difficult to actually assess the nature of the uninvited guests and know that they're guests and that they do eventually leave or that they can be asked to leave or that you can ask them to modify their behavior, for example. So who are your uninvited guests? Like here often, I've found myself on the shopping network um, a few times. I've been to, you know, soap opera, melodrama, interpersonal things, organizational trauma, um, desires, um, infatuations, being angry, feeling hurt, um, anxious. Um, am I doing the right thing? When I teach, I sometimes wonder, you know, what's, what's the right thing? And there's the capacity, um, sometimes I th- can attribute it only directly to this practice, is sometimes shift attention onto what's going on in my mind, rather than being stuck in it. So, for example, um, this morning when I was going through the lobby, I saw that some of the flowers underneath the flower arrangement had like fallen on the floor, and I had a feeling of like, um, sweep those up, you know, sweep those up. And then I'm like, thank God that's not my job to do that right now. And then I looked at them again, and I thought, it's really beautiful the way they've fallen there. There was a feeling of like, how great to just leave them there, you know. Or I was wondering if I should tell you guys this because now you're going to worry if you stand in front of me at the lunch line. Someone's collar was funny, you know, and I I felt like hmm, I wonder if that I wonder if they actually noticed that their collar is funny and would they be more comfortable if I just <laughs> fixed it? And then I'm like, no, they are very fine the way they are, and they probably would not like it if I did that. But the experience of watching these little urges and impulses come and go has a really um, interesting quality in practice. It actually is fun to watch them, especially after you watch them go and you're like, wow, you know, that had an influence. It had a grabbiness to it. Like I felt like I kind of wanted to do that. And then just because in part because of the, the way that our training here is to sort of like there's some little rules about not unexpectedly poking people from behind, you know, I didn't do it. <laughs> and then you get to see your mind do go through something, which I think is very useful for the um, regular life. So these visitors that come, like, very different um, styles sometimes. Um, actually, I was reading, a friend of ours lives in Boulder, and she said Airbnb in Boulder has um, become kind of dangerous for the people who do their places by Airbnb. Well, first of all, there's all the people that are corrupt and just buying houses to make them into Airbnbs. That's bad. But now that the marijuana is legal in Colorado, people fly to Colorado, rent an Airbnb, and after the weekend, you come back to your house and it's really a big mess. (laughs) Like, they spent the weekend having like a huge party getting high in your home. Um, So it's a strange phenomenon. I don't know if you've noticed in your mind sometimes um, things come in there and have a big party and leave it in a little bit of a wreck like (laughs) half the afternoon. (laughs) Not everyone, like maybe some of you are more serene. But you can get to know a little bit your own emotional style here and start to see um, what you might tend to do more than others or just what you do, you know, how you do it. There's a big diversity in the way that we cope with our emotions, the way we regulate, how things get a hold of us, what things bother us. Often the um, responses that we have to things in this environment are very much like 
responses that we have to things outside. So it's not just, you know, the silliness of wanting to, you know, sweep up the flowers could indicate that I have this kind of like slightly compulsive, fixy housewife piece, you know, that gets me completely worn out at times, um, but it's soothing at other times. So I'd just run through a couple of the places that our minds, most human minds have tended to get hung up since the dawn of humanity. And the Buddha also um, pointed out these sides, the grasping mind, the mind that feels like something is missing in my life and I will be okay if, only if, and I will be destroyed if it doesn't happen or if the coffee runs out, for example. Um, I was inviting other teachers to share the coffee that I brought and I had a little squeaky mind of like oh my god what happens if they drink it all up and we run out (laughs) like "Ah!" (laughs) it's like okay you're a teacher you should be able to handle this and and you do want to share it and you do want to have people be happy like of course but these little spasms of greed or neediness you know it's a really interesting thing to watch Um, And this is a non-trivial thing, like think about the world and what needs fixing in the world. Um, Parts of ourselves that may feel vulnerable or faulty or just, you know, not doing the things that we think we should do. Um, People we care about, children or siblings or people in trouble, like actually has anyone noticed that stepping in and trying to fix other people does not necessarily pay off? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this is a trial and error kind of process, but <laughs> the Buddhist author um, Tony Bernhardt calls herself a recovering fixer in relation to her children. Um, so the res- remedy to this, like mind, it's kind of a, it's an overprotective, grasping mind. Even the Buddha's father was in the mythology was very overprotective, trying to keep his son from ever. Um, seeing any pain in the world, like everything around him was kept beautiful and stuff. And that's kind of a metaphor for what our mind is like on some level. Like we would really like things to be like that, but the world does not function according to that law. Like there is pain and there's some stuff that we need to do about it. And pleasure is a beautiful and uplifting part of our world. Like in the article about the parrots, just to look at the face or the eyes of one of those birds was just something very noble about beauty and beautiful things and beautiful events. Um, But some kinds of happiness and pleasure are more satisfying than others. So pleasure and satisfaction are slightly different. Um, Very often we feel like we just need something to be pleasant for us for a little while, you know. And there's, it's not wrong, but it's not ultimate. And our mind can get really invested in it as if it were um, really what we need. It's also a part of our mind that's sub, um, subject to a tremendous ability to be manipulated um, by advertising in which our, we can be tricked into feeling that we need certain things or we need to look a certain way in order to be okay or be happy. So we need to be able to kind of see a little bit um, desire and how we respond to it. Some people need to get a little more in touch with our wants and desires um, and know what we really want, maybe in response to someone else's agenda or a public agenda, like how do we actually feel? And there is a part of us that can know what's really fruitful or what would be of meaning for our unique life which the equanimous balanced attention um, favors are getting in touch with something a little bit deeper than the immediate impulse sometimes, not always. Sometimes our desire to be comfortable is not necessarily so healthy or so good. It's not necessarily good for our body all the time. Um, Lying around feels so easy. Going to the gym, so unpleasant. We were talking about it also in terms of the sitting posture, which tomorrow there'll be some instruction a little bit about sitting. The other piece that can happen, um, when we just can place our attention on the desire itself and watch those waves, I think that's clear. Um, 
and let ourselves be able to be with um, something that we feel we need or want for a little while, like abide with it and see what sorts out or see what the energy is really about, see what it's really like. And maybe sometimes just letting go of that and coming back, coming back to the simplicity of the breath and body. That is the practice here. Desire is often about something unobtained or out of the moment that we need to bring in. And we'll be teaching later on in the retreat about taking appropriate actions at appropriate times, a little bit more than in this talk. The other part of um, that obscures kind of our balance of mind can be aversion and disliking. Um, So let's say the times when our mind says it really should not be this way, which is related to it should be some other way. Sometimes they're a little hard to tell apart. There's a cartoon um, of one of those mountaintop cartoons, I think, where there's these two like meditators on their peaks, you know, with their little caves and their little diapers or whatever. And one of them is saying to the other one, I've discovered that life is suffering and it's also complaining and whining. (laughs) So I don't know if you've noticed, I have a pattern of liking to complain. I've noticed there's a certain whiny part of myself that um, may come from feeling helpless or whatever. I don't know, different things. But sometimes I think that I have a little pattern about that, of getting a little whiny or somehow maybe trying to get in touch with um, what's really bugging me or figure out, uh, try to get some help with positive action or something like that, try to connect, I don't know. But your mind may uh, like to complain, may like to reject, may like to fix. And it's important to just have the equanimity view and be with it for some period of time because this quality of presence and equanimity also has the clear seeing piece of mindfulness can see clearly actually it can so you might see the hurt behind the anger for example or the conditioned nature of watching your mind build up this huge case about something or someone right I had a friend who was in a very long-term disagreement with a close person, and they had been quite estranged. And then the other person told uh, my friend something like a fact about what was going on that completely made her understand something. You know, everything became completely different. And she said that she never really uh, believed her mind as much again when it started to, you know, build those cases, have those targets, make the problem be out there or in here like it's a problem. It was different. Another person I know uh, read a biography of Donald Trump. And he said that reading about his childhood made him understand something more so that um, that person's negative feeling, and I'm trying to say this without making a political speech here, that that person's their own negative feeling about Donald Trump was different when he had some compassion and understood that it was all coming from somewhere. It didn't mean that he then believed that he was going to go vote for him or that he loved him or anything, but it was a sense of the humanity of both of them or how he came to be, how Trump came to be the way he was. So we can start to see ourselves in this way too. You know, um, if you go to 12-step programs, you know you're more likely to... Uh, use or drink again when you're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, you know, different, you know, when we're in different kinds of states or under stress, maybe our best self isn't always accessible or different things like this. Martin Luther King said, the good in life we see and appreciate, but the evil is what we do. (laughs) And is this true of us, each one of us, somewhere in our life have we notice that we haven't governed all of our habits completely, like we have not become the person that we might think we should be or could be, or um, our eating habits, our speech, like we still like to gossip, we still like to complain, whatever that might be. Um, What does it mean that we're like this, you know? What could it evoke in us? Like, could it almost be a gate for tenderness or an understanding that... um, You know, a certain kind of perfectibility is not where we're going. I'm going to read a little um, 
story that I think is quite a, a beautiful one about um, difficult mind states. It's a story from this magazine, The Sun. Um, the person was a meditator. So it's a young man who went to visit a difficult uh, parent. So at the end of the visit, it's all gone terribly and everyone feels all chewed up kind of by family dynamics. Um, I'm not saying that all families are like this or anything, but some can be or some visits can feel this way or it's, it's something that happens in intimate life. Lacking any other option, he writes, I tried to do my Zen practice right there while I was going through the x-ray machine at the airport to be in my body, to inhabit the actual real-time situation instead of my head full of ideas. But it was no use. The week had been rough and my heart felt like a wound. Then it occurred to me maybe I was in the real-time situation after all and pain was just a part of it. I was in the moment and the moment sucked. Just because you hurt doesn't mean you're doing something wrong. It may simply mean that you're alive. I'd been numb to my parents for decades, denying my rage and resentment. Now I was finally feeling something. I was feeling like shit, actually, but it was a start. Then he has this moment at the end where he's gone through the security and he sees his father waving at the other side and sees there's a whole part of the story where his father lost part of his finger in a machine. So he sees his father waving with a hand that's missing a little piece of the finger and there's that moment of just that beautiful connection of kind of love and joy and sorrow that um, came because of this attempt that he made. I also was noticing when I read it that his decision to try to be present physically was, I think, part of the whole sequence. Like he sort of bounced off and said, no, I can't, you know, the mind state is, is much more the prominent object. What I need to be present for is that. So that but he started by trying to somehow come into his experience that way. I noticed that today I was going up the stairs and I was feeling very joyous and I had this little Buddhist teacher in my head that said, feel your foot, you're not feeling your foot. And I tried to feel my foot and I'm like, no, you know what, there's permission, I can feel the joy here. I'm just at the top of the stairs feeling really joyous. That's the mental object, that's good, it's okay. You don't have to always feel your foot. So I have another friend who's a practitioner who takes her faults and flaws and she says she puts them mentally on the altar. She like, doesn't mean that she's worshiping them, you see what I'm saying? It's that she allows them to be there and she gives them a certain amount of respect as included in her practice as part of the sacredness of the holistic attention that is that kind of secret message of equanimity that the same attention can come to things that feel complicated or difficult. And it's very good, very healing to return to the body. And the body also expresses and carries so much of our feelings. So um, the mind can also wear us out quite a bit. So it's good to keep the body in mind and keep it in attention. I'll close with a poem by, uh, she's named Tado Chimoko. She was one of the most important female poets of contemporary Japan. During her life, she published eight volumes of poems. She lived in Oakland and died in 2003. She lived in Oakland for a while. It's called Shade. A dark elephant living in a dark forest came to sip from a pond as the Buddha watched. A dark elephant from a dark forest has come to the pond and sipped the trembling vision of the moon. A dark deer from a dark forest also came to sip from the pond. The deer has also sipped the vision of the moon, as the moon in Buddhism is a metaphor for enlightenment. The Buddha leaned over and scooped up the moon in his palm. I too will sip if it will illuminate my heart just a little. More than 2,000 years after the Buddha's death, his remains have been divided endlessly. Only imaginary numbers could ever count the tiles atop the pagodas that stretch into the skies, three stories, five and seven stories. You as a person of brightness living now in a town of light, to which pond will you go to sip when overcome by the night? When you scoop up the water, what vision of the moon will you find in your palm? 
I too can sip if it will shade my heart just a little. I too will sip if it will shade my heart just a little. Her uh, book was called A False Record. <laughs> you know, let's sit a little bit in the shade with the reflection of the moon. There's an expression in um, Buddhism called like great peace. A great peace is the peace that isn't confined to just being peaceful. It's the peace that can be at peace when things don't seem so peaceful. So thank you for your attention and your practice. May we all be equanimous with the ups and downs of life. There's a walking till about 8.45, and then another sitting. You may notice there's some uh, names on the board of um, people will have meetings with teachers tomorrow. We'll have um, this part of the group will be seen tomorrow. More of other people will be seen the next day, others the next, and um, you'll see. So check the board, especially if you're relatively new to meditation. That's uh, newer people will be seen sooner. Thanks. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.